All right, well, I want you to think about something with me, church. How many of you have ever been backpacking or hiking in the woods? Just put your hands up. Really, that's all? Whole, whole sections of you live inside? That's horrible. You need to fix that. Maybe we'll uh, have a Kingsway hiking trip, and I'll be at the front. Um, I love to hike. I love to backpack. My wife and I um, do less of it now that we have kids. But if you've been backpacking or done a lot of hiking, then you know that there are these points along the trail where it's really tough to figure out where you are or where you're going. Maybe you've been there for longer than you would have preferred to. You don't know where you are or where you're going. You know, you're in the middle of a rhododendron thicket. You are rock hopping down a stream bed or working your way up a long series of switchbacks. But then there are these other points on the trail when you you suddenly come to an overlook or you summit a mountain and all at once everything makes sense. So the, the trees fall away, the horizon opens up, you can, you can see for miles, and you're finally clear on where you've come from, where you are, and where you're going. And I think that there are parallels between the backpacking that I love and working your way through the Bible. There are places in Scripture where it's, where it's hard to know where you are and where things are going in, in God's great big story. So, you know, you're, you're reading through a, an Old Testament genealogy and the son of and the son of and the son of, and you're just thinking, why is this here? Where's this going? You know, or maybe you're, you're reading through the Psalms, and it seems like God has left the building, and evil's going to win. Now, I appreciated Bev reading Psalm 22 earlier because... That, that opens up not with, great is the Lord, but, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, Lord, where are you? Where am I? But then you reach these, what I would call, scriptural summits. They're like mountaintops in the Bible. Where everything that came before and everything that's coming after starts to make sense. So think of it this way. All scripture is breathed out by God, but there are particular points in the Word of God where you can grasp the whole more clearly, where you, where you can put your finger on the pulse of some of the most fundamental realities of the Christian faith and, and where the good news of the gospel comes into clear view for us to see and be amazed. And Mark 15, church, is one of those sections. It's the account of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. And it's one of the mountaintops in Scripture. It's one of the summits where everything else makes a lot more sense. And the entire claim of the book of Mark, I would argue, comes into focus in this chapter. And here's the claim. It's really the point of the whole book of Mark. The substitutionary death of Christ demands a confession of faith in Christ. The substitutionary death of Christ demands a confession of faith in Christ. What Jesus has done for us requires something from us. He doesn't just do things for you. Having done something for you, friend, He requires something from you. Namely, a moment-by-moment decision to trust and live in the good of the power of the death of Christ. That's the claim of Mark. So we don't come to this thinking, oh, what's interesting today? What, what can tickle my fancies till I watch football later? No, we come to this saying, Lord, lay hold of me. Make your claim on my life. So listen with me as I read Mark. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself! Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Hoses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Heavenly Father, uh, to read these words, to ascend this summit, is not easy. Lord, there is no way in one sermon for us to begin to tap the depth of what went down on that day. When you died. But I pray that today, Lord, as I speak, that we, like the centurion, would face you and see you and confess you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're familiar with the book of Mark, then you may remember that it opens with a pretty audacious claim. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for the next 15 chapters, Mark proceeds to give us proof after proof that that wasn't an exaggeration. That wasn't hyperbole just to get your attention at the beginning. And it starts with the Father's declaration at Jesus' baptism. You are my beloved Son. With you... I am well pleased. Mark wants us to realize that this man, Jesus, really is the Christ. The only begotten Son of the Father. And and Jesus himself says as much in Mark 14. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming With the clouds of heaven. So get this. Mark says Jesus is the Son of God. God the Father says Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus himself says, I am the Son of God. And so by this point in the book, all we're waiting for is for another man or woman around Jesus to add their voice and confess finally that this man isn't just a man. He's God in human flesh. 
And in Mark 15, 39, it finally happens. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Here's what I want you to realize. That confession didn't happen in a vacuum. There was nobody, this wasn't staged. There was nobody next to the centurion who was like, you're lying. Truly, this man, no. It didn't just happen in a vacuum. It wasn't staged. It was the result, the product of two things. The centurion faced Jesus. And the centurion saw the way that he died. I hope you realize that that Mark 15 is meant to do that for you. To cause you to face Jesus. To see the way that he died. Church, you can read about Jesus' healing ministry. You can follow Jesus' moral example. You can even enjoy hanging out with Jesus' people in a place like this. You can do all those things, but you will never know Jesus for who he is, let alone trust Jesus for who he is, until you allow your gaze to linger on the way that he died. You have to do that. Because it's his death more than anything else that summons our hearts to echo the centurion in a confession of faith. It's his death that does that. And this morning I want to draw your attention to several characteristics of Jesus' suffering, okay, which taken together, I believe, show us why the substitutionary death of Christ demands a confession of faith in Christ. Okay, several characteristics of Jesus' suffering. So begin with number one. Jesus' suffering was unimaginably great. It's the first thing we need to see. It was unimaginably great. Don't, don't move too quickly past verse 21. Look there with me. Why did the Roman soldiers enlist Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross? Typically, That was the responsibility of the condemned man himself. Well, it wasn't because the soldiers were merciful. They weren't known for that at all. It was because Jesus was too weak to do it. He had been beaten with a multi-lashed whip embedded with bone and metal. His skin had been decimated and he had already lost untold amounts of blood. And when he arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. What's that? That, That's a crude narcotic. Usually given to victims of crucifixion to, to dull their senses and minimize or reduce their pain. And Jesus, notice, refused to take it. I mean, why? Because he refused to run from his suffering and drink anything that would cause him to lose consciousness before his suffering was complete. Mark's reminding us, friends, that this is not an ordinary victim of Roman justice who's looking to go out as easy as possible. Okay, this is a man who wants to retain complete control of all his faculties to the very end. And in verse 24, they crucify him, which meant driving a nail through his left hand, a nail through his right hand, and a nail through both ankles. Okay, crucifixion did not kill immediately. It wasn't intended to kill immediately. It was intended to kill slowly. And usually it took several days for a victim to die. Every time Jesus wanted to breathe, he had to pull up with his arms, push up with his legs, sending spasms of shock through his body. 
And typically, a victim of crucifixion didn't die from loss of blood. They died because they were too weak to keep breathing from asphyxiation. Jesus' suffering was severe in a physical sense. But it was also severe in an emotional sense. I mean, think about this. They refused him the dignity of remaining clothed. Like they cast lots for his garments. They, then they hung a sign above his head announcing the charge for which he was crucified, which in Jesus' case read, verse 26, the king of the Jews. Now, in case you missed it, that wasn't an act of worship. Okay, that was an act of mockery. They, they didn't believe for one minute that Jesus was king. He's a pretender. He, he's just like the, the robbers on his left and on his right, guilty of, of insurrection against Rome. I mean, look at the guy. He, he's on a cross. He claimed to, to save all these other people, but he, but he can't even save himself. Well, what kind of Christ is this? You're, you're no Messiah. You're, you're weak. How can you rescue us from Rome if you can't even rescue yourself from Rome? I mean, just, just imagine the pain, the emotional pain of knowing exactly who you are while nobody around you has the faintest idea. But friends, the intensity of his physical and emotional suffering pales in comparison to Jesus' spiritual suffering. Physical suffering, severe. Emotional suffering, severe. Spiritual suffering, unimaginably great. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Why was it dark? Well, folks, it wasn't a random eclipse or a, a passing cloud. It was a supernatural phenomenon with supernatural significance for any Jew who knew their Bible. Exodus 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Why did the whole land go completely dark? Which, if it was like the darkness in Egypt, was, was a darkness to be felt. It's because something was happening as Jesus hung there. That the God who poured out his judgment on Egypt was now pouring out his judgment on Christ. Only unlike the ninth plague, this, this wasn't a judgment on a select group of people at a select point in history for a select group of sins. Minute by minute, hour by hour, Jesus was receiving in his body and soul the accumulated wrath of God for every act of evil that all of his children had ever done from the dawn of time until the king returned. All of that wrath, all of that judgment on Christ then. And after three hours of darkness, Jesus screams, what are perhaps the most painful words anyone has ever uttered? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, of all the people that have ever lived on this earth, there is only one 
who did not deserve to be forsaken for his sins. It was Jesus. Because he had no sin. He was perfectly obedient, which which is why for 33 years, Jesus always spoke about God and to God as his father. Always. If you you go through Mark, he never says, my God. He always says, Father. But at this moment, it's not Father. It's my God. Why? Why? Because as Jesus hung on that cross, bearing the guilt of the sin of the world, he who was once beloved was now utterly grotesque in the sight of the Father. And the object of the Father's eternal delight became the object of the Father's unmitigated wrath. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and the Father was morally obligated to turn his face away from the Son. That's why Jesus was forsaken. And why he quoted Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. There was nothing partial about Jesus' suffering on the cross, friends. It was unimaginably great on every level. An infinite price was owed and an infinite price was paid. So here's what that means for us today, among other things, okay? It means that we of all people should be eager to forgive one another when we sin. We should. I mean, explain why. Because the most grievous sins ever committed against you by a brother or sister in Christ have already been paid for. So, for you and I to punish one another by withdrawing our affection or deploying the silent treatment or writing an angry email or engaging in gossip or any number of things that you and I do to try to make people who've hurt us pay for their sins then that moment we are proclaiming a lie about the suffering of Christ. Namely, that it wasn't sufficient to pay for that sin. More payment is necessary. I mean, maybe the suffering he endured was sufficient payment for for that sin she committed against me last week. But, But you know what? Okay, this week, no. No, not good enough. She's going to have to pay for that one. He's going to have to pay for that one. Brothers and sisters, that should not be. Should not be. The substitutionary death of Christ demands a confession of faith in Christ. And one of the chief ways we make that confession day after day is by being quick to forgive. Okay, so that doesn't mean there's not consequences for sin, but it does mean that we should be very careful to never punish a fellow Christian for their sin, either verbally or physically, because when you do that, you are making a mockery of the suffering of Christ, acting as if that suffering was insufficient to pay for that person's guilt. When in reality, his suffering was unimaginably great. An infinite price was owed, an infinite price was paid. And so Hebrews 10, Hebrews 9, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Here's my challenge to you, Kingsway. Don't make people pay what God says They don't owe. Don't do it. Don't do it in your marriage. Don't do it in your workplace. Don't say, Lord, I know you've said they don't owe anymore, but I think they do. 
And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a little more suffering, a little more punishment of my own. Don't do that. Don't make people pay what God says they no longer owe. Be quick to forgive. And if the one sinning against you is not a Christian, because some of you right now are thinking, well, that person who hurts me, how do I know that Jesus has already paid for that sin and suffered for that sin? Well, here's God's word to you. Romans 12:19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, that, that's a promise, by the way, that God is not going to fail to keep. Because if he took your sin seriously enough, Christian, to crush his only begotten son for you, then you can know that one day justice is going to be served. So I exhort you, stand with the centurion and see that his suffering was unimaginably great. Okay, point two. Jesus' suffering was absolutely necessary. Unimaginably great, absolutely necessary. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Well, what they intended as an insult was way more true any of them could have realized justice must be served sin must be paid for wrath must be poured out there's no way jesus could save himself from the cross and save us from the cross right one of us had to die under the curse of sin and praise god my friends that in that hour jesus refused to come down i won't do it I mean, oh, the temptation. All these people. What's behind all their taunts? We know, Jesus. You can't do it. You're just a dude. I mean, do you realize in all the movies we watch every summer that come out, that is the moment when the hero goes, ha ha! You know, and just blows stuff up. You thought you could give me? No way. I'll show you. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come down. He stayed. He stayed. And the reason is that your sin makes the death of Christ absolutely necessary. Forgiveness is never free. A debt must be either paid or absorbed. It's true in our relationships with one another. It's true in our relationship with God. Our our sin renders us incalculably indebted to God. And instead of extracting that debt from you by pouring out his justified wrath on you for all eternity, Jesus says, young man or young woman, older man, older woman, single, married, black, white, rich, poor, I will gladly pay that debt on your behalf so you can go free. That's what he says. That's the heart of the gospel. Salvation through substitution. Christ dies so we don't have to die. Listen how J.I. Packer says it. The notion which the phrase penal substitution expresses is that Jesus Christ our Lord moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined. And so won for us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. To affirm penal substitution is to say that believers are in debt to Christ specifically for this. Look at this. And that this is the mainspring of all their joy, peace, and praise, both now and for eternity. Do you believe that? That the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is the mainspring of your joy and your peace, both now and for all eternity. And his death demands a confession 
of faith. And one of the ways we make that confession, especially in light of the necessity, the absolute necessity of his suffering, is by being a humble people. If the first application was being quick to forgive, the second is to be a humble people. That means that when someone shares a story of sin or brokenness with you, they should never hear you say, wow, you're a mess. <laughs> no. Here's what they should hear you say. They should hear you say, welcome to the club. You mean, you mean you're like me? It sounds like you need Jesus just as much as I do. Do you see the application? It's not just that that Christ's death is absolutely necessary in some abstract, remote sense. It's absolutely necessary. And that means it's absolutely necessary for you and you and you. And so when we get together, there should be none of this posturing or sense of, whoa, you're really messed up. No, you need Jesus and you need Jesus and you need Jesus. And by the way, we all need him the same. The chief priests and scribes refused to believe that. They didn't believe they needed a substitute, someone who would die for their sins. They, they believed they needed help from God, but the help they were looking for went no, no deeper than deliverance from the authority of Rome. In other words, notice this, they were looking for a political hero, someone who could improve their life circumstances, but not a savior, not a savior. And unless you believe that your sin makes his suffering absolutely necessary, his death makes no sense, which is why they could taunt Jesus. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And I want to warn you, friend, you make the same mockery of Jesus' suffering today when you arrogantly believe that his substitutionary death is less necessary for you than for the person next door. You do the same thing. We do the same thing. Have a humble spirit. Have a humble spirit. Stand with the centurion and see that Jesus' suffering was absolutely necessary. Unimaginably great. Absolutely necessary. Lastly, Jesus' suffering is eternally effective. Look at verse 37. After nearly six hours of suffering, the end finally draws near. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now look at what happens next. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, we need background. So in case you're unfamiliar with the temple, the interior was divided into two sections. Okay, the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place, you had things like the lampstand, the table with the bread of the presence, the altar of incense. In the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God through the word of God among the people of God. And between the holy place and the most holy place was a curtain 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. I mean, just just imagine that. I, I don't know how tall the ceiling is, but I don't think it's 60 feet. So it's taller than this ceiling, almost as wide as the stage. Thick, woven, embroidered, and nobody gets to go behind it. Except high priest and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And Jews who knew their Old Testament knew that men who went behind that curtain without being authorized, including kings, were either struck with leprosy were consumed by fire. 
And the massive curtain protecting the most holy place symbolized the separation between a holy God and a sinful man. So, so imagine the shock. I mean, Mark doesn't tell us, but I wonder, were there priests in the holy place? You know, altar of incense, setting out new bread, lighting the lampstand. Imagine the shock when suddenly the entire curtain is ripped from top to bottom. Just ripped apart. Why, why is it important that it's from top to bottom? Well, because Mark wants us to know that it wasn't a man who ripped the curtain. It was God. It was God. And there was no clear way for God to communicate that Hebrews 10:11 had come to pass. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, referring to the presence of God in heaven, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, the death of Christ accomplished for you what no bull and no calf and no sheep ever could. Namely, unfettered, unhindered, eternal, unbroken, undiminished access into the presence of a holy God. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what Mark means when he says the curtain was ripped. Remember I said the substitutionary death of Christ demands a confession of faith. In Christ, And one of the ways that we, we make that confession in view of the eternal effectiveness of Christ's suffering is by being a people who are confident in prayer. That's not the only way we draw near to God, but, but it's one of the primary ways. And know this, friend, even on your worst days, when you are most aware of the continued presence of sin in your life, if, if you're clinging to Jesus for salvation, that curtain is never going to be closed in your face. Not once. Never closed. Jesus, he, he's not going to say, well, today it's open, but tomorrow, you know, it's kind of sewed up halfway. Or, or today it's ripped, but, but tomorrow, you know what, it's going to go back up. That's, that's not the case. He'll never close it in your face because it's not your good days or your bad days that determine whether or not you can be confident in prayer, confident in your relationship with God. It's the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that does that. You can't make yourself right with God. You'll never be able to make yourself right with God. Only Jesus makes you right with God. And he has done that once and for all through his suffering on the cross in your place for your sins. And so the call, the command, is to stand with the centurion and see that Jesus' suffering was eternally effective. Unimaginably great. Eternally effective. And absolutely necessary. Every one of those characteristics of Jesus' suffering makes a claim on our life. Are you quick to forgive? Are you a humble person? And are you confident in prayer? This morning, we have six individuals who have decided that they are ready to make the confession I've been talking about. Not just to God, but to all of you. I want to remind you that baptism is a corporate sacrament. What do I mean by that? Well, by that I simply mean that it's not enough for an individual to say, I want to be baptized. So here we go. 
You see nowhere in Scripture people baptizing themselves. It's a corporate sacrament in that it is our way as a church of affirming that we believe you have made a profession of faith in Christ and we welcome you as a brother or sister. So I am so excited to watch as older and younger folks do that. And with that, I'd like to invite Chris to come up on stage and explain what we're going to do next. Good. Good. Um, Normally, we wouldn't stop to do this, but I just want to say, Matthew, you brought to the forefront for us the heart and the truth of the gospel. And I just want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God used you. Everybody has ministry. God used you to bring the truth of what we are the beneficiaries of. And um, it doesn't come just because you wake up in the morning and decide to talk about it. It means because there's been study, there's been preparation, there's been sacrifice, there's been putting time aside. So, brother, thank you. Well, folks, we, and how appropriate, we have the privilege this morning to celebrate baptism, to celebrate baptism, to observe baptism, um, And as we heard this morning, this is a time where we celebrate what God has done. And this is something that God, through his son, has directed that those who follow him do. That they place not only their faith in Jesus Christ, but they take a step to publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. What they are saying as they do this is, First of all, I have been affected by the work of Christ. I have received faith to trust him, and I am placing my faith in him. So this is a public proclamation that those who are being baptized are doing. Secondly, it's also for us who observe and for those who are being baptized, it's a symbol. So when you go down into the water... It's a demonstration and a declaration that the old man, the life of sin, has been crucified. And we identify the life of sin to be crucified with Christ on the cross. And that old life has been crucified, is dead. And the new life, as we come out of the water, we are risen to new life in Christ. We're risen to new life in Christ with all of the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection given to that person. And that's a work of God. And through baptism, it's a symbol that reminds us of that. In summary, baptism is a step of obedience. For those who are following Christ, it's a public profession of faith, number one. Number two, it's a testimony of the mercy and grace of God. God has been at work in their life. Thirdly, it's a reminder of the amazing work of God in the gift. As Matthew mentioned, a bad day when you wake up and you don't feel like a Christian. As Christians, we can look back to our baptism and say, no, my salvation is not based upon my feeling. It's based upon the work of Christ. And that day, we affirmed through baptism. Thank God for the gift of baptism. And fourthly, it's a time for our church to celebrate because God, God is at work among us. People are not just joining a group or not becoming a part of just a social organization. They've been added to the family of God by the Spirit of God. So just like coming parking in the garage doesn't make you a car, just coming to a church doesn't make you a Christian That happens by the work of God. And today as a church, we celebrate the fact God has been and is at work among us 
in these people's hearts. And they are taking a step by faith to proclaim Christ as their Lord. So it's a time for us to celebrate. Just practically speaking, we will ask each of the candidates to come forward. They will come forward. And if there are family members that wish to join them up here, if you would like to do that, we certainly want to welcome you to do that. They will enter into the water. We will ask them a question and ask them to give a response to that. Then we will baptize them and then have a short prayer. They do get to come out and get dried off. So we'll do that. So I'm going to ask, first of all, the Chapmans, Mr. Will Chapman, to come forward. Will, today I want to ask you, why do you want to be baptized? Um, I want to be baptized because um, it's a command from God, and I want to follow that command. Um, I also want to make a public announcement before the church that I am saved, and I also want to praise God that um, he saved me from my sin and had mercy on me and was willing to save me from my nature. Will, based upon your public profession of faith and God's work in your life, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this young man's life. We thank you that you have spared him from years of rebellion. And, Lord, we pray right now that you would grant Will the gift of assurance. And that your Holy Spirit would drive away and banish every lingering doubt that would cause him to wonder, did Jesus really die for me? Grant him a strong, lifelong, enduring gift of assurance of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen, brother. Good job. Why do you want to be baptized? I want to be baptized because I know that being baptized is a command, one of God's commands, and I believe that following the commands of God is one of the, one of the or is, is the thing that all Christians can and should do. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, based upon your confession of faith and God's work in your life, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Mark, I believe the Lord would remind you that he has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And Father, I pray for this young man. You would make him bold in evangelism. And I ask that wherever fear of man or concern about what other people think of him keeps him quiet, that your Holy Spirit would remind him that he is a son of God and that you have placed your words in his mouth and you have given him a mission and a message to speak. I ask, Lord, that this day as he's baptized, you would anoint his mouth and that he would boldly speak the gospel and not be quiet because he fears God more than he fears man. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mr. Jim Donahue. Why do you want to be baptized? I want to be baptized because I felt the Spirit of God and God's work growing in me over the last few years. I felt my faith growing in God over the last few years. I'm amazed at His work, honestly. And um, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me from my sins. And I want to live in the glory of God the Father forever. Amen. Jim, based upon God's work in your life and your profession of faith, it is my joy to baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, Father, we give thanks for your work in Jim's life. Thank you, Father, for the purposes and plans that you have for him to be one who testifies to the name of Christ. Father, thank you for the way that you have brought glory to your name through his life. Father, we ask that you would continue to fill his heart with joy, fill his heart with amazement, as he considers not only his current salvation, but, Lord, what lies ahead for him. Father, I pray that you would continue to seal him in yourself, captivated by the truth of who Christ is. Father, strengthen his relationship. Fill him with hope and peace and joy in believing. Cause him to remember this day as a day celebrating your work in his life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sarah Arnold. Why do you want to be baptized? Because I want to declare my love for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Sarah, based upon God's work in your life and your profession of faith, 
it is my privilege and joy to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, for Sarah, I pray today that over the next couple years of her life in particular, she would know that her identity is found in you. Mm. And that when people around her, friends or family, challenge her faith or question her faith or point out sin in her life, that she would return to the rock of ages and remember day after day that she has been bought and paid for by the blood of another and that she is yours and that that reality would define everything about her, all the choices she makes for years to come. I pray that in situation after situation, Sarah would stop and ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? remembering that she is first yours before anybody else's. Bless her, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. Good job. You did well. Jocelyn Oyaris. I want to give just a brief background here. When I did Jocelyn's interview for as a baptismal candidate, I asked her if there'd be anybody who she would want to baptize her in particular. And she said she wanted Alicia to baptize her. I said, really, why is that? She said, because I watched Alicia's life before she was a Christian and after she's become a Christian. And I was amazed at God's work in her life. And for me, it was a testimony that God was real. And since that day, when I placed my faith in Christ, Alicia has been there day by day to support me, to strengthen me, to counsel me, to guide me. And so she's been a spiritual mother to her. So very appropriate. And we give thanks to God. But I'm still going to ask you the question. Jocelyn, why do you want to be baptized? Uh, before I ask your, uh, um, answer your question, first of all, I wanted to say good morning to all of you. Um, I don't come to church every Sunday, but the Sundays I do come, I'm usually cornered to the left side of the church. Um, I started to hear about the Word of God eight years ago, ever since I was 14 through Alicia, like Chris said. Um, I really didn't fully believe about his word till I saw the transformation he did in her life. And soon there, I believe that he's real. And right now in my life, I have a lot of struggles with my family, friends, and B-O-Y-S, like you said, boys. But I know that God is the only one that can help me through all the struggles I'm going through right now and today I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross because of our sins I know he was buried and resurrected and today I want to follow his example and obey God and have faith in him that he can transform me and help me in my life thank you Por tu profesión de fe, yo te bautizo en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo.
Jocelyn. Jocelyn. Para mí, to me, verdaderamente es un orgullo. Truly is a, I'm very proud of this day. Pero mi orgullo es porque una vez más puedo creer que Dios es fiel. That God is faithful. Tú eres una oración contestada de mi Padre. I'm gonna do a pray. Y puedo dar testimonio I can give you a de que Dios cumple sus promesas. That God is faithful and keep his promises. Me siento tan honrada de servir al Señor I feel so to serve the Lord. y ver cada vez más and see one more time. la semilla que Él cree, que Él sembró en mi corazón que está dando frutos. That is Por esa razón, For that reason, esta decisión que tú has tomado de obedecer al Señor será premiada por Él It will be by him. y no por los hombres. Not for men. Por eso quiero leerte una palabra. That's why I read you this From Luke, chapter 12, verse 8. Lucas 8, 12, perdón, Lucas 12, 8, dice, les aseguro que a cualquiera que me reconozca delante de la gente, también el Hijo del Hombre lo reconocerá delante de los ángeles de Dios. I tell you, everyone who acknowledged me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Por eso debe de estar confiada que ahora eres una hija de Dios hasta la eternidad. Y lo que más me encanta es que nuestra amistad que empezó desde hace nueve años enseñándote el camino de Cristo nunca se va a acabar Never gonna end. eres mi amiga por la eternidad gloria a Dios for glory to God. ahora sí pertenezco a tu familia Now you are part of my en nombre de Cristo Jesús amén José Azuare. Jose, why do you want to be baptized? I want to be baptized because I believe in God. Um, he's a resurrection and he can show me the way to be better to God. Amen. 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 Amen.
Jose, uh, it's a privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Ever since you've been coming to our group, we've had the privilege to know you for a couple of years, and we've seen the decline in your body with the ravages of ALS, but the miracle of the regeneration of the heart hmm. is what's happened to you, and we're so proud and glad yes. for you in the, in the church, all your friends, and in the future, I pray that you're not defined by your weakness, but by your strength in your heart. God bless you. Amen. wet, but I am joyfully wet. Let's pray together. Father, we give you great thanks, Lord, for this testimony of your work among us. Lord, we are grateful that you come among us, that you work among us, that you draw us to faith, that you strengthen our faith. Lord, we give you praise. We give you thanks that God of all gods, King of all kings, walks among us and draws people to faith. We celebrate today, Father, these baptisms because we celebrate you and your work. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>